Welcome to the Sober Heathen Podcast, friend and foe. I'm Scott the Sober Heathen. I am not sponsored by Dr. Pepper, even though I'm wearing the shirt. I wish I was, but they probably don't even know I exist. But I do contribute to their uh, production on a weekly and daily basis. So uh, podcast number three in, in as many days, uh, four in, in three days, actually. Um, looking forward to this. Henry has um, been involved in some Twitter spaces that I've been listening to or been a part of. Uh, He's got uh, really great takes on things. I'm really happy to have Henry all the way over from Cheshire, right, Henry? Cheshire, Cheshire. I live Cheshire. in Warrington, and well, I live in Warrington in Cheshire, which is north of England, right, absolutely in the middle between Manchester and Liverpool, right in the middle between both. Okay, awesome, so cool. Well, welcome to the podcast, Henry. Uh, tell uh, the folks that don't know who you are a little bit about yourself, if you would. I'm Henry. I identify myself as a recovered alcoholic. Um, I have been sober since the 11th of September, 2005. That's that's my recovery date as well. Sorry, I got a little excited there. September 11th is my sobriety date. Yeah. Brilliant. The reason I, I don't share my sobriety date from any egotistical or looking for any commendation or demanding respect for the length of my sobriety. Um, I share my sobriety date because based on my life at the time, um, had things gone my way, that was the date that could have very easily been on my tombstone. Because that was the day I was trying to take my own life. Wow. So, and a God of my understanding had a different plan. Yeah, I love, I love your take on things. It's, it's, you know, you come from a place of just sharing your experience and strength and hope. You're not, you never try to push anything on anybody. You're just, this is, this is what happened to me, or, you know, there is no finite way to do certain things. I I really like how it's not passive because you're not, it's not like you're recovering quietly, you know, you're outspoken and and you share positive vibes with people, but I, I really like your approach. So looking back when you decided to recover, you know, what were some circumstances that, uh, led you to make that decision? Well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not actually from the UK. I was born and brought up in Dublin. I'm the youngest of three children. And I come from an alcoholic background. My father was an alcoholic. So one of the things I discovered in my journey in recovery is that I got taught very young how to be dishonest. Because everything that happened behind closed doors stayed behind closed doors. And outside to the outside world, you built up a persona and you pretended to everybody else everything was okay so it was okay to lie and I got brought up in a culture in my family where I'm the youngest of three but the extended family was rather large where one of the principles of the family was real men drink and basically uh, men don't cry Uh, a woman's place is in the home and all of these sort of prejudicial ideas that I grew up with and I love it because I, I don't know if you've ever read a book called The Four Agreements um, in, re- in relation to that, group, that book. It talks about as children, we are domesticated into our beliefs and we hold on to those beliefs. We, we set an attachment to those beliefs. That, that's the prejudicial ideas that we grow up with. Sure. Um, and I came to England in 1989 when the role that I had in Ireland had been made redundant and uh, they gave me an option to come to England. And one of the things I remember at the time, my two children were the only two grandchildren my mother had. My father had already passed away and died of alcoholism, um, although his death's difficult to say that. Um, 
but in respect of that, I remember standing at at the exit lounge at the airport. My mother, my brother, and my sister were there, and my all of my my now ex wife's family were there. And I remember making a promise to my mother that we'd be back, um, and that was on a Sunday, um, not the day after, but the following Monday. My mum collapsed and died of a heart attack, and she was a lady who never drank in her life. So I used that, that I was unable to keep that promise and never able to keep that promise as a as a tool to be able to drink. Um, and my, my drinking progressed and I, I have a rationalizing mind that will turn around and say, what harm am I doing anybody else? Because inherently as an alcoholic, and I'm only speaking for me and my experience, I am absolutely selfish and self-centered. The world revolves around me. And... How it's affecting you, really, I don't care. I won't tell you that, but I don't care. And um, as my drink, I, I got caught drinking in 1998, drink driving uh, in 1998. And I had a, a fancy job with a fancy company car and, you know, uh, label suits and shirts and ties and, you know, all ego materialistically driven. Um, look at me. Um, and I lost that job. And to be perfectly honest with you, I shouldn't have really had that job. My resume or CV, as we call it here in the UK, was full of lies, of stuff that I couldn't uh, I couldn't live up to. And every day I went into that workplace, I would go in with the attitude of, today's the day, they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing, and they're going to fire me. Yeah. So living in that self-centered fear, that's exactly what I did for a long time. But when I got caught drink driving in 1998, I remember getting thrown in a police cell overnight and uh, I remember sitting in that police cell and thinking you know if I'd only taken the M6 motor or the M62 motorway instead of the M56 motorway and that's not rush that's not rational thinking where drinking is concerned sure. I, re- I remember my sister phoning me not long after that and turning around and saying to me um my sister and brother both live in Ireland turn around and saying to me you're going to turn out exactly like our dad and my response to that was, well, there's been an alcoholic in our family for generations and generations, and one of us has got to keep that tradition going. And I slammed down the phone. And I can look back now, in hindsight, about the only exact science that I've got, and see how I rationalize. And there's a beautiful line in, in, in the big book that basically talks about rationalization. On page, on page 550, it says, rationalization is giving a socially acceptable reason for socially unacceptable behavior. And socially unacceptable behavior is a form of insanity. And it is. See, I can turn around when I ended up eventually as a street drunk, begging on the streets, homeless. Um, I can rationalize that it's perfectly okay for me to steal a bottle of cider from the supermarket and run down the road with it because after all, they've got millions. They won't miss it. Absolutely. So... Um, and and f- from that point of view, in in being o- unable to tell right from wrong, and, and for me, in our step one experience that we talk about, I hear a lot of people talk about the step one experience being the bedevilments that are described on page 52, that I'm unable to keep personal relationships, I'm prey to misery and depression, I can't control my emotional nature, so I'm full of fear and a sense of use to others. Now, for me, those are the symptoms of the unmanageability manageability of my life. The unmanageability of my life is what's described on 44 to 45, that 
I'm unable to keep moral and philosophical convictions galore. Morally, I know it's wrong to steal. In a space of 14 years of marriage, I committed adultery twice to a wonderful lady who did not deserve that. But I look at it from my point of view in most of my life that I suffer from a disease that I declare is the disease of not enough. No matter what I have, it's not enough. I'll find happiness over there, or I'll find happiness over here, or I'll find happiness in that car, or that woman, or whatever it might be. I'll seek my comfort externally for what is internally wrong with me. Um, And, you know, like you would have thought, like after seven years of marriage, getting caught committing adultery, that it would be something that I would not do again. But seven years later, I did it again. My ex-wife and I now, who have made proper amends to... Uh, both financially and emotionally and spiritually um, and I spent part of the day today with um, we laugh, joke about it. we talk about the seven year itch you know, and I was caught having an affair uh, at seven years of marriage and then I was caught seven years later and she jokes about it she says well you mustn't have scratched it properly the first time <laughs> um, so um, in, in respect to, I can see where I was always looking for something else. Was, that's, yeah. We talk about it, that sense of separation. You know, I can stand in a room full of people at the time and everybody's smiling and happy. And I don't understand why, because I'm not smiling and happy. Yeah. Just, even though, I'm, I mean, I worked. The, I ended up working in the licence trade where I'm running a, running a, a, a club. Um, and I'm standing in a club with hundreds of people. And in my mind, nobody can see me. I'm different. And that's... I tried AA in 1998, and I only went to one meeting uh, because everybody else told me I had a problem with drink. And then my I, I call it my relapse lasted a further seven years, and things just got worse. Right. And my, chil- my children at the time then, they were sick of the broken promises. Uh, my daughter and my son. I hadn't seen my daughter for five years, and I hadn't seen my son because um, I'd be standing in a pub or a club and I'd turn around and say to you my children are the most important thing in my life Yeah. but they would phone me and I would make an excuse or a lie and not turn up because my experience is that once, once I put a drink in my body every decision I'm going to make for the rest of that day no matter what time of day I did it was based on where my next drink was coming from and I don't care who I stand on to get it yep the selfishness, the self-centeredness that we talk about. Uh, and whilst I was kneeling in a shop doorway with my little polystyrene cup in front of me, and I've been on the streets about four and a half, nearly five months, uh, and you can just imagine personal hygiene was not a priority. Sure. Um, and I looked to my left and I saw my daughter walking up the street with her then boyfriend. And I thought, and I'd always sort of held on to a God in my life because to be perfectly honest, the reason I held on to God was that was all I had left to blame. Sure. It was God's fault. You know? um, and I remember begging God, please don't let her recognize me. Please don't let her see me. But she did. And she stopped and she stared. And uh, she pointed. And I could see the tears welling up in her eyes as she looked. And she turned to the lad. And she said, see that man there? That man there used to be my dad. And she walked on. That was the 11th of September 2005 and I made a decision that I was going to try and take my own life and I got introduced to AA eventually through ending up in a mental asylum 
uh, for 18 weeks. Um, and I got introduced to AA the second time uh, in my life. And I remember when the man came to see me and he was talking an old timer that came to see me and he was a really good, I'm a product of a really good 12-step call because he, he turned around and said to me, have you tried AA? And I said, yes, I've tried AA. It didn't work for me. I've been to one meeting. Right. And his response was, you're dead right, Henry. A doesn't work for you. You work for AA. I remember thinking, what? <laughs> so I went down to the meeting downstairs. It was on a Monday night. And I walked into the room and it was the first time I'd seen the scroll of the 12 steps. I remember thinking, God, there was only 10 commandments. You lot have added two more. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I heard people talk about normal things like being invited to family parties. I mean, I missed my daughter's graduation. And I missed my daughter's 21st birthday party. And all my family from Ireland had come across me. But she wouldn't invite me to it because she was terrified I would make make a show of her. She, I would embarrass her. Um, and I remember thinking, well, I, I remember actually somebody saying something about paying bills. And that seemed foreign to me. How do you pay bills? Um, but I left that room with, with a label. that I The label I put on my emotion was envy. I like what you have. I want it and I want it now and I deserve it right now. So yeah. I borrowed a copy of the big book from the nurse's station and I thought, I better read this How It Works thing chapter because they read How It Works at the meeting and I better find out what they're talking about because probably by next week they'll want me to run that meeting um, and they want me sitting at the top table. And I remember coming to step two and looking at it and thinking, came to believe that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. And I'm sitting on my bed reading it and I stared at it, stared at it, and I slammed the book shut. And I flung it on the floor and said, that book's insinuating I'm insane. How dare they? I'm sitting on a bed in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And I can't even see it. The doctor's opinion talks about it. I have a mind that cannot tell truth from fault. I can't see what it is. And Dr. Harry Tebow talks about the barriers uh, to an alcoholic are defiance and grandiosity. Those are the two main barriers. My defiance. No, I think I know better. Or then I actually try and prove that I am better. And I hear a lot of people saying they walked into AA rooms with low self-esteem and low self-worth. That's not my experience. Yeah. I walked into an AA room with high self-esteem and high self-worth. Because I'm going to walk in there. I'm going to sit amongst you lot. And I'm going to prove to you lot you're a bunch of drunks and I'm not. So, that, again, that sense of separation. That I'm different. And I came into AA very much in, in, in a respect of, with, with an attitude of my four favorite words, I know and yes, but you don't understand. My case is different. If you'd married the woman I married, if you lost the job in 1998, if you'd done this, if you, and I'm, I'm trying everything to resist the change. And I've since discovered that in my life, it's not the change that causes me pain. It's my resistance to change because yeah. I resist it because I think I know better. And uh, I had a man became my sponsor. When I left, I, le I ended up in a little one-room bedsit shelter, a YMCA shelter. And, uh, for the first four years, he took me through the work using the 12 and 12 book, not the big book. And uh, I'm thinking that I've had that vital spiritual experience, and I haven't. And what I'm doing is I'm going around AA room sharing my opinion rather than my experience. And four years into this fellowship, I hit what I call a sober rock bottom. I walked away from AA, and by the grace of a God that I choose to believe in, I didn't. I didn't drink, um, thinking that I could do it better. 
But then I, through a series of events, I ended up coming back to AA. And I ended up attending a meeting here in Warrington where people knew me. And uh, I remember after the main speaker, I was sharing back and I actually said, I'm either going to take my own life or I'm going to drink again. And to be honest with you, the first option sounds better than the second. Sure. So I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm, I'm planning on writing out suicide notes, trying to think of ways that I could take my own life four years stone cold sober. I'm thinking, what is this? Um, and I had to go around quite a few rooms and the book talks about it before I found a man who was armed with facts about himself. Now, I know they do in America. A lot of people go to AA meetings with their big books. But then when I got sober, uh, it was never heard of in, in AA here in the UK. And I saw this man walk into a room and he had his big book in his hand. And he talked about, he, he was talking about the solution from the book in the meeting. Prior to that, I'm going to meetings that basically where I'm hearing about people telling me about how bad their day is or how huge the vet bill was or how badly their divorce is going. Um, but I'm sitting there dying, not hearing anything about a solution. And in four years in AA, nobody ever qualified me as such as to what an alcoholic is. When I heard that man share, I thought he's got something. And I remember approaching him outside. Even when you look at my pride, my I wouldn't even turn around and use the words, will you help me? What I said was, will you take me through the work? And he said, yes, of course I will. And I had to be in his house. And he took me through the work line for line, word for word. And I made a vow then that I would never, ever sit in an AA room uh, and not carry the message from the book. But at the same time, I'm open-minded enough to know that AA is not going to work for everybody. There are many ways to recovery, and I respect every way to recovery. Absolutely. If you get sober, standing on your head every morning for an hour and a half, go for it. I don't care. You're sober. AA has worked for me. There's a beautiful... One of the things that struck me before I came on here, and we see it quite a bit on the Twitter, where there are people trying to, shall we say, dominate the fact that AA is the only way. But it's not. And one of the things that I got taught by my sponsor, who's the man is still my sponsor to this day, he, he talks about in the medical opinions at the back of the book on page 570, it describes it perfectly because it says, Dr. W. W. Bauer, broadcasting under the auspices of the American Medical Association in 1946 over the NBC network, said in part, Alcoholics Anonymous are no crusaders and not a temperance society. I'm not a crusader. Yeah. But most of us start off as vanities thinking, look, you've got to try it. No, you don't. Who am I to turn around if somebody puts ABC on Twitter? Who am I to turn around and judge and say, you're going to drink again? I don't know if you're going to drink again. I pray that you don't. But who am I? And even with the people that I sponsor. I mean, I get the privilege now. I'm currently sponsoring 14 people. Um, oh. Eight women. Uh, and the rest are men. Um, six men. And I'm taking them through the work. So one of the things that I found, that I, I find it, it talks about in, in, in the book, in the forward to the second edition, Strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, is vital to permanent recovery. Bill W. talks about it, that if an alcoholic on page 12 going into 13 or 13 going into 14, 
if an alcoholic fails to enlarge his spiritual life through his spiritual growth through work and self-sacrifice for others, he cannot survive the certain trials and loves what's ahead. Um, and in in respect of that, it it took me four years to find out what an alcoholic is. And the man who became my sponsor, he asked me a simple question that's on page 44 in a book. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you find you've lost control, you're probably an alcoholic. Sure. Now, I identified myself as recovered. and over I know over here in the UK, you get, in AA meetings, you get a lot of people going, you will, you can never be recovered. But my book tells me I can't, actually, because... Well, then once. Res- exactly. In respect of that, it, it tells me in step 10 that I'm placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. One of the reasons why I, I identify as recovered is very simple. If I lie to you today, it's got nothing to do with the fact that I'm an alcoholic. It's just because I'm dishonest. Yeah. If I steal from you today, it's got nothing to do with the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I'm a thief. Let's not blame my illness or bad behavior, bad attitude or whatever it is. I suffer from an illness called alcoholism. And to my mind, alcoholism, drunk or sober, demands some form of treatment. Now, if your treatment is going to the gym six days a week, go for it. That works. Go for it. I mean, I have a home group here in the Warrington area on a Monday night. We're we're very active in not so much in what we do in the meeting. To my mind, what's very important is what goes on between that meeting and next Monday. That's what happens. And I'm a great believer in the fact that, and I hear a lot of people, I get asked to talk quite a bit on, at meetings, and I'm a great believer in the fact of, you know, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. If you want to know what I believe in, watch my feet. Don't listen to me. Watch my feet. And I say that to all the people that I sponsor. When anybody comes to me as well and says to me, can you help me or will you take me through the work? Yeah. Particularly if they say, can you help me? My response usually is, actually, no, I can't. Because I can't even help myself. But what I will do is, I will be of service to you. Now, in that respect of if I'm working from a position of helping another person, yeah, and I can see this happening on Twitter quite a bit, if I think I'm helping someone else, I am working from a position of superiority. Yes. That I am declaring that I think I know more, and I don't. I know probably know less. If I am working from a position where I can be of service to you, I'm working from a position of gratitude that I am grateful that you're in my life all of the people that i sponsor are told on a regular basis by me that they are doing more for me than i am for them that story about my daughter eight years ago i walked that girl down in the aisle at her wedding awesome how does that happen you know i remember she was getting married in the january and she phoned me up and she said "Uh, i have a favor i need to ask you and i thought all right, here we go. <laughs> um, she said, I want my sober dad to walk me down the aisle. And they were getting married in January. And I went, I, I just burst into tears straight away. Tears of absolute gratitude. You know. um, my grandson, whom I spent most of today with, you know, he's my daughter's second child, uh, Arthur. He's, he's actually called Arthur Henry. How does that happen? My daughter's 40th birthday is, was this weekend, but it's a big family due coming up in, in August that 
my family are flying across from Ireland um, to be at the family do, and um, we're all booking into the one hotel where we will all be together. There was a time when they didn't want me anywhere near them. Didn't want me anywhere near them. Now, I've tried other methods to get sober. A drinks diary. You know, control drinking. But what I've discovered is that I would be inherently dishonest. I remember going to the sessions where you'd filled in your, your drinks diary and I would always fill in my drinks diary in pencil because depending on the mood of the person facilitating the meeting, I would go, oh, better rub that out. I'd erase it and go, okay, I only had two that night. I was very much a blackout drinker. When I drank, it led to blackout. You know, I, no matter how many times I tried to control it, I couldn't control it. And I tried other methods, but my psychiatrist who was working with me in the 18 weeks that I was in the hospital, bless him, lovely man, he knew a bit about AA, didn't know a lot, but my experience being and this is my experience, I'm not saying it's anybody else. The difference between therapy and AA was the therapy was trying to get me to change my thinking. And by that, my actions would change. What AA told me was, no, if you change your actions, your thinking will change. And that's pretty evident in what we talk about in the vital spiritual experience, because it says it in conversation that Carl Jung had with Roland Hazard on page 27 he says ideas emotions and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of these men and when I'm taking people through the work and it was the way that I was taken through the work say right what was your guiding force now bearing in mind the guiding force is driving me it's I'm, I'm driven by it and then the book tells me on 62 I think it was 63 it says I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear a hundred forms of self-delusion self-seeking and self-pity and see then in that life I I believed I was making the choices I'm not fear is making the choice self-delusion is making the choice um, self-pity is making the choice and I, I thought I was making choices and I'm not so and for us within AA and I've seen it happen so many times I've, I've, I've sadly buried many people uh, and that I've tried, some that I've tried to sponsor, some that have been grand sponsees of mine who have not got, and have gone back out and relapsed, that not tried other methods. Um, in respect of the fact that when in AA, I am told I only have two choices. There are two doors. Live in a spiritual way of life or die an alcoholic death. Now, I've said this to many newcomers who've walked into a meeting. And we are... My experience is we are the only members of the human race who hesitate at that question. Die an alcoholic death or live in a spiritual way of life. And I've even had people turn around and say, can you explain an alcoholic death? I've never had anybody turn around and say, live in a spiritual way of life. What's that like? Yeah. Um, but see, what happens is, and to a certain extent, it can happen with newcomers as well, is I'll create a third door. If I get that woman, I'll be okay. If I get my job back, I'll be okay. If I get that house back, I'll be okay. Yeah. And I'm, I'm placing my happiness on on external. Now, beautiful book called uh, 
Awakening by Anthony DeMello. And he talks about what he, but one of the great expressions he says in that book is most of us go through life dreaming we're awake. Right. Only dreaming it. And what he also says is happiness is only a flash of pleasure. It's impermanent. The example he gives is if I buy a new car today, absolutely wonderful. I love it. It smells nice, everything else. And I'm showing it off and I'm parking up outside meetings. And everybody's telling me it's great. And I'm, I'm feeling good. Then as soon as the first payment comes out of the bank at the end of the month, happiness is gone. Yep. I need to look for the joy of living than happiness. And I don't place my, my, my attachments on anybody else. I hear a lot of people, and I see it on Twitter as well, talking about surrender. You know, believe it or not, in the first 164 pages of the of the recovery section of the book, the word surrender never appears. We talk about abandon. We don't talk about surrender. Um, and there's another great writer um, called Richard Rohr, who's wrote a book called uh, Breathing Underwater, Spirituality and the Twelve Steps. And what he talks about in there is, he says, yeah, absolutely. No doubt I have to surrender. But the paradox is, now I have to take responsibility. Yeah. That's that's part of the problem, part of the issue. And I'm a great believer in the fact, fact that, you know, if I can sit down eyeball to eyeball, one-on-one working with another alcoholic, which um, yesterday I went to a meeting at nine, worked with my sponsee after, then I had another one at two, um, had another one at four, and then another one at seven. Wow. Now, that to me is a perfect day. Absolutely yeah. perfect. And what they do after they leave my house is none of my business. Yeah. You know, but whilst they've been with me, I'm still sober. And that gives me, and I don't place any attachment on sponsees either. Yep. From a sponsorship point of view, what I say to people when they ask me when I sponsor them is, I'm not the type of person who will worry about your sensitive feelings because I'd rather tell you the truth yep. and you won't like the truth. And you will tell me to go away using two different words very often, but I won't go away. I'll still be here. My do- I have a thing here where I live. Most All my sponsees know. Front door to my flat, even right now, is open. It is not locked. As a sponsee of mine, if you turn up, you do not knock on the door. You walk in. Awesome. You absolutely walk in. and You are welcome. And what, what I usually say, walk in and make sure you put the kettle on and make a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know? And I hear a lot of people saying, hey, hey give me, give me that, give me Gave, gave them their life back. That's not true for me. I don't want my own life back. It sucked. It was shit. A gave me a new way of life, a new attitude. Because we're talking about ideas, emotions, and attitudes. Ideas is my thinking. My emotions is my feeling. And my attitude is my current belief as to where I am right now. And one of the things I had to get very used to early on was, uh, well, when I was four years into it, working with this man, he kept reminding me that he talks about the fact that in page 23 that the main problem the alcoholic centers in his mind. How can I solve the problem with my mind if my mind is the problem? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to fix it with the very thing that broke it. It's my thinking that's the problem. You know, And going by, again, a beautiful writer, Wayne Dyer, he basically says, if I change the way I look at things, the things I look at will change. My natural desire is to look for 
a reason for me to sit on my self-pity pot because that's a comfortable place for me to be. But if I change the way I look at it as to what can I learn, every day is a learning day for me. When I wake up in the morning, when you get to my age, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I say is, thank you, God. But, um, I, it, it, you know, and I, I work as well. I put myself through college in my early sobriety and I studied human resource management. And I, I now work for the, I actually work for the civil service here in the UK. And uh, they trust me to hire and fire people. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. how, do, how does that happen? It's, it, it, when I'm looking at it and I, and I start my day, it's not that I, when I wake up in the morning that I've got to go to work. I change the way I look at things. I get to go to work. Yeah. It's not that I've got to. So one of the things that I found in my life, there was, uh, I never had any gratitude yeah. for anything. I had a sense of entitlement, no matter what. Um, and I, I respect the fact that it, when people say AA doesn't work. Well, I respect the fact that they say AA didn't work for me rather than just simply saying AA doesn't work. If you turn around and say to me AA doesn't work, I'm going to ask on experience. I'm a very great believer in the fact that, and I say to people all the time, and they, they give me information or advice or otherwise, I will turn around and say, can I ask you if I may, please, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, is that your opinion or your experience? And they turn around and say, it's, it's my opinion. I go, well, really sorry, but it's absolutely of no use to me, but thank you for sharing it. Yeah. I'd rather hear your experience. Yeah. Um, Contempt prior to investigation, page 568, Herbert Spencer. Exactly, yeah. And and that's and, and I was at the same to a certain extent. Yeah. People that say to me, hey, it didn't work for me, my response is, totally respect that. Did you do the 12-step program? And were you taken through the 12-step program, all 12 steps? And uh, nine out of ten say, no, I wasn't. Sure. So, well, what you're basically telling me is AA didn't work for you, but you didn't stay. Part of the problem we have over here in the UK, and I can see sometimes on some of the Zoom meetings that go on in America, um, there's a misconception that meetings will keep you sober. Yeah. No, they won't. Meeting makers, meeting makers, meeting uh, makers make it. Make yeah. it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I've seen that happen. And see, because we, we, I've seen so many people do it. I'll place the responsibility of my sobriety in the meetings, in AA's hands. So all these people in the room will keep me sober. But I'm only there for an hour and a half, once yeah. a week, twice a week, three times a week. What am I doing in between? Yeah. You know, what am I going to do in between? And I have to basically go through this work and it, it, the book talks about it you know it's designed for living I mean I, I ask many people who come to AA or otherwise and say well before you came to the fellowship what was your purpose in life and you know what every person I've ever asked that question they've turned around and said I don't know I never had no one <laughs> well my book talks about I'm not a great lover of the preamble that says my primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics I would rather believe that it's my primary purpose is to help other alcoholics. If by doing that, I stay sober. If I make myself my primary purpose, trust me, my rationalizing mind will turn around and go, well, it's all about me again. And it's not. It's a line on page 20 that says my very life 
as the next problem drinker is totally dependent on my constant thought of others and how I may help meet their needs. Um, and it doesn't say other alcoholics, it says other people. Yeah. Any, anybody in that respect. Um, I, I'm so, I've become open-minded and I try and, one of the, one of the people that I, 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 I read, Richard Rohr, he talks about this dualistic mind, right and wrong, good and bad. How the hell do I know? There is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no bad. Because if I'm, if I'm going to place a title on it, I'm being judgmental. And who the hell am I to judge when I too am imperfect? Sure. It's the way I look at it. So that's probably, um, bless you, I'm grateful for your time. And I'm, I'm hoping that something I said may have, may have helped other people. In, in, but I'm not saying that everybody has to go to, everybody who drinks, who identifies himself as an alcoholic or not, or whether they do or whether they don't, needs to go to AA. You know, what I'm saying, when I put the work into AA, it worked for me. And I continue to do that work on a daily basis. The book talks about it. It says, I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Yeah. You know, yeah. I get up standard, usually between half four and five every day. Uh, I do my prayer and meditation. Then I send out, um, I do my readings and I send out the readings to the people I sponsor. Um, and then I can start, I can start, I have my plans for the day and then I can go through the day. I can break off during the day at any point because I mainly work from home and sit and meditate. I remember the first time I meditated, actually. I remember sitting in silence and thinking. My mind was so the racing brain all over the place. I remember sitting thinking, wow, no wonder I drank. You know, so, but it's getting to that. And I'm a great believer in the fact that it, it's in the silence that I find the answers, not in the noise. See, there are days out there and I heard somebody else use it. I'm, I'm robbing it from somebody else. There are days out there when that world out there is too big. It's way too big. And I don't want to be part of it. You know, those are the days when I have to basically practice the opposite of what my mind is and go and try and find somebody else to help. In my early days in sobriety, I used to go to the local hospital asking the, the alcohol advisor who worked, or alcohol nurse who worked for the hospital, have you got anybody I can speak to? You know, and I used to go and sit and talk to people. Whether any of them ever got sober or not, I don't know. Yeah, well. But that's, that's what, what, what I, I look at. Is it's, and the other thing as well is, in, in traditional level, we talk about AA works on attraction rather than promotion. Now, the way I read that and the way I've been taken through the work is, my position as an AA member yeah, has to look attractive. I don't, if I'm trying to promote myself as someone who knows more than, or the fact that I will try and turn around and say, if you don't do this and you don't do that, you will not stay sober. What? That's promotion. We work on attraction. When I'm asked, one of the other things, I, I'm old style, when I'm asked to do a main share anywhere, and I've traveled around the UK doing main share, when I'm asked to do a main share anywhere, I turn up in collar and tie. I always do. I show the room the respect it deserves. Because that room saved my life. Sure. So 
And from the point of view of sharing my experience, strength and hope, or as it says in chapter five, what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now, from the point of being a drop down street drunk, literally with a black sack with nothing in it, to turning up in collar and tie, I'm hoping that it will mean, well, how has he done that, gone from there to there? Yeah. They can come and ask me and ask me any questions they want. So I'm hoping something I may have said may have helped somebody else. I'm very grateful for the time that you've given me, and thank you so much. Um, but whatever way anybody anybody wants to do it, uh, right. whatever way anybody, anybody wants to do recovery, you go for it. You've got my support. Absolutely. I'd rather see you standing on your head an hour and a half every morning than watching you die of this this illness. Amen to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Henry, I mean, you can tell that uh, you have a good message because my fat mouth was quiet almost the entire uh, entire podcast because you 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 have a great presence and and you're you're obviously uh, you know you present everything and in, in, in the way it's meant to be. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but for myself, I believe that, you know, you're the type of person that drew me into AA to begin with, you know, your approach to it, you know, you, you, you know it and you understand what it's trying to say. And you're doing the action by presenting it in a way that is attractive, like you talked about. And for me, you know, you know, the heathen part of it, you know, I, I don't have a religion, but listening to you talk and having conversations with you is spiritual is all hell to me. You know, I feel all kinds of like, I leave these podcasts and I feel way better than I did the 45 minutes before we started every single time, even if I was in a great mood. There's a spiritual connection when two people that have gone through this get together and talk or just one talks and one listens. It's just I got goosebumps and I damn near cried my eyes out when you talked about walking your daughter down the, hall, the, uh, the aisle. And that's such a beautiful thing, man. And I, I appreciate you and I appreciate you, the, the calmness that you bring and the perspective you bring to Twitter. Um, you know, you're gonna we're gonna have people out there that are crazies, and they're gonna they're gonna speak from a position of authority, and we can't do anything about that. But what we can do is is try to say, you know, what worked for us, and and you know, I I don't want AA to go away. You know, I I, I don't attend a lot of meetings, but I still love the book. I still have both my big books. I still love what Bill W had to say. Um, I love everything about it. It's just uh, sometimes misrepresented, but you, sir, represent it the, the best way, the, the way that helped get me into it. And I appreciate you for that. And so thank you so much for coming on the yeah. podcast. Um, I hope maybe we can do it again someday and catch up. And it's so cool, man. September 11th, we both have big days on that day. That's so amazing. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> thank you. It's been, been an absolute privilege and an honor to be here. Thank you so much yeah. for asking me. Yeah. Thanks, Henry. And we'll talk soon, my friend. We will indeed. Take care. Bye-bye.